Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. It was an awakening, an evolution that put me on this path. Like, I can do something about this. I can do, I can do more than just take these pills. I can empower myself and I can take control of this disease and this disease will not define me. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 141. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Well, hello there, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. So pleased to be with you today. I have a fantastic episode for you with Dr. Sarai Stansik. She is amazing. She's so inspirational. Honestly, I think she's superwoman, literally. Uh, Her story is just so impactful and you can just see and feel and hear the passion exuding for her, the compassion, the love, the dedication to her patients to make a difference in this world to cause that ripple effect. And she has already, because if you haven't heard, she has a documentary called Code Blue, and she just released a book called What's Missing from Medicine. So please check out these resources. The book is called What's Missing from Medicine from Dr. Sarai Stansik, and the documentary is called Code Blue. So Dr. Stansick is a board-certified physician with expertise in internal medicine, infectious diseases, and lifestyle medicine. She is a passionate advocate for change in healthcare by advocating for a shift in how we train physicians, placing greater emphasis on prevention and health preservation rather than solely on disease management. And she's empowering patients to achieve optimal health via lifestyle modification. A brilliant woman. You can just tell that she has so much going on in her mind, what we can do better, how we can help patients better, and using her own story, using her own pain and struggle to bolster her forward. In this episode, we talk about her plant-based healing journey, her journey with multiple sclerosis. It is a terrifying story. It's truly unbelievable what she went through 
how many years she had to experience pain and disability on so many medications that were giving her side effects and what happened to start changing that to the point that she ran a marathon, a marathon. That's insane. It's amazing. So she has not just experience as a physician helping treat patients, but she has personal lived experience, what it's like to have a chronic condition, what it's like to be told over and over again, this is just a disease that has to be managed to slow the progression, but the progression is going to continue. You're going to be in a wheelchair in this many number of years. So, wow, she's just so strong, so powerful. We talk about what the biggest problem is in the current medical system and how we approach chronic disease. We talk about lifestyle medicine. She defines it in her own way, which I love the visual that she gives. You can also see that visual if you purchase her book, What's Missing from Medicine. We talk about why she's so passionate. We talk about what habits she believes that her patients struggle with the most implementing and changing and what's an easy place to start what she wishes more patients knew, and what personal habit she's most proud of, where she feels like she's, quote, a professional in one of her habits, you're going to love it. So I'm just so grateful uh, that Dr. Stancic was able to come on the show and tell us her perspective, give us a little bit of her story, and offer us some hope, offer us compassion and love, positivity, so many gems. You're probably going to want to write some of this stuff down because she just offers just wisdom, true wisdom that's going to help you in your life. This is the kind of episode that I love having on this podcast because you can take it and apply it immediately to your life and start feeling a change in your well-being. So without further ado, let us welcome Dr. Sarai Stancic. Dr. Sarai Stancic, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio. What an honor and a pleasure. You're doing some fabulous work. So thank you so much for being my guest today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And we're off to a great start. You pronounced my name correctly, and that's half the battle. (laughs) Most of of my interviews start with Sarai or something. So thank you so much uh, for pronouncing my name correctly. Well, you're welcome. Well, you know, it is something I had to learn as a podcaster because I'm so used to just like getting down to business and going. And then I realize I don't know how to pronounce my guest's name. So I need to (laughs) confirm before we start recording. And even sometimes I still get it wrong, but I try my best. As somebody who also has a name that might be a little unusual, it is something important to me. So you have a lot that you can tell us, but let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your plant-based healing journey. Yeah, so my journey really began uh, about 25 years ago uh, when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, In the middle of a busy call at the hospital, I found that I couldn't feel my legs, and that led to an emergent MRI. And the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis came and really changed the course of my life. And, you know, I followed um, the conventional uh, interventions that, that we know well, that we are trained in. Um, uh, disease-modifying therapies were started initially, and I found myself that 
Um, within eight years of the diagnosis, I had become largely dependent on about a dozen medications and, and the disease modifying therapy on which I was on um, still resulted in having exacerbations at least once or twice a year. And I started to lose function. Um, by 2003, I was largely dependent on a cane, uh, depressed, and I had largely lost hope. And then by chance, I came across an article that discussed the connection between diet and multiple sclerosis, and I was struck by it. And here I was an attending physician at the VA hospital in New York, you know, double uh, board certification in infectious diseases and internal medicine. I knew nothing about diet and lifestyle and its, and its effect on health outcomes. So that started, that catalyzed um, a great interest in me, and it led to one of the first publications that I read was an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1952 by a physician named Roy Swank, and in it he discussed um, how saturated fat might very likely be playing a role in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis, and, and um, he went on to not only describe his hypothesis, but he actually started treating patients with a low-fat plant-based diet and followed about 140 patients over 34 years and ultimately published data in the 1990s in the journal The Lancet, where he found, where he reported 95% of his patients remained disability-free. And that struck me, uh, and it, it created a whole lot of uh, hope and, and joy that this could potentially serve me. And um, that's really when it all began, though. 2003 is when I really began um, this uh, quest to learn as much as I could about how food affects uh, the disease state uh, and not only food, but all other aspects of lifestyle. And as I learned more and more, I uh, introduced more of these uh, uh, lifestyle changes into my into my own life. And it didn't happen in a week and it didn't happen in a, in a month, but over time, I started to feel better. You know, that fatigue that consumes MS patients began uh, to lift. Um, I started to feel my legs again. Uh, I started to, for the first time in a long time, engage in daily physical activity. At first, it was just a stationary bike on which my husband would assist me to get onto, and I could do a few minutes, and then exhausted and in pain, he'd assist me off. But over time, that I built that up, ultimately um, started to do a little bit of jogging. And then in 2010, about seven years after I began uh, these lifestyle changes, I crossed the finish line at a marathon. So I, I think the beautiful thing about lifestyle medicine, and certainly uh, this idea of plant-based nutrition, I started this because of my diagnosis. But the wonderful thing is that not only did it benefit uh, and improve uh, the management and, and outcomes in MS, but it's also going to reduce my risk of breast cancer, my risk of colon cancer, my risk of diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease. That's why this prescription um, is incredibly powerful. And it's simple. It's really such a simple um, offering. All we have to do is introduce this idea of more fiber on our plate. You, can, you don't have to do it overnight, but where are you today? And what can we do today to just take it a step further? Um, how can we introduce regular physical activity into our lives? And of course, the other aspects of lifestyle include sleep, stress management, 
um, addressing issues of substance abuse that which can be problematic in in our society, um, particularly today where we're we're living through this COVID nineteen pandemic, and so many of us are turning to um, substances to relieve some of that stress. And then finally, the the aspect that often doesn't get much attention but is so important. Uh, this idea of social connectedness, uh, our relationships in our lives, and and how important they are uh, in our health and well-being. Ah, uh, what a story! I think that word you said, "simple," though, can both be a benefit of lifestyle medicine, but I think also because it's so simple, I think a lot of people don't believe it's as powerful as it is. You know, because I think we're used to things being like this technology and lots of research. And it took like decades to come up with this special treatment that's going to cure everything. And then people think, Oh, well, I eat more fiber. How is, I mean, how, how is that working? You know? So I think sometimes that's, it's both a benefit, (laughs) but also a disadvantage that it's so simple that people don't believe it. But really quick, I want to go back to the very beginning because I can't even imagine Back when you first got diagnosed and I was reading your story, you had written about it, how, you know, you, you woke up, you were on call that your beeper went off and all of a sudden you couldn't feel your legs. I mean, you must've been absolutely terrified. Was there like a moment that you thought, okay, I'm imagining this, or did I just sleep on at a weird angle? And, but then what shocked me is that you went into the MRI. It was a long time, like a couple of hours that you were in there terrified. And then the radiologist was like, call all the medical students and residents. They need to see this. I mean, tell me a little bit about how you were feeling that night and what was going through your head. Yeah. Um, it was, there was a lot of trauma that night. Um, when I woke up, cause before that, before that beeper went off, um, I had been running around. I was on calls, running to the emergency room, back to the ICU. I mean, it was just crazy. I mean, literally running. And now I finally find a window to take a nap. At most, I might have slept for 20 minutes. You know, when you're in the middle of a busy call, your pager's constantly going off. It must have been like 20, 30 minutes, pager was off. And all of a sudden, I can't feel anything from my belly button down. I don't know what to think. Um, There's just fear that flushes through me. Uh, and honestly, I don't even remember how I got from there to the emergency room. Uh, and then once I was in the MRI, and again, here I was, uh, a, re- a medical resident, having ordered MRIs, I don't know how many times for patients. Um, but I had never experienced that, like going into that machine and the claustrophobia, your whole body goes in there and you're, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. I don't know what's going on. Everyone's looking at me and I'm at the hospital where I, you know, I went to medical school there. I was a resident there. Everybody knew me. So the ER physician, everybody was like, they didn't know what to say. You know, they were scared for me and, but everyone trying to smile and, and keep it really, really positive. But you know, when you're in the MRI machine, there's like a little mirror and you can see out and I could see the technician behind the window and I could see two of my girlfriends, um, the attending physician and, and the chief resident uh, there. And I could see their expressions and whatever they're seeing in front of them is not good. Uh, so I knew it was something um, problematic, something scary. So I can feel the experience in the MRI machine. And I think I was in there for two hours, just my heart racing, just fear. And then at at some point while I'm in that machine, 
I start to feel this burning pain that's just running through my legs. And, and I, I go from numbness to now this like searing pain that is just traveling up and down my left leg. And I don't know, you know, it's just tears and fear. Um, finally, and then, yeah. And then finally, when, when the study was completed, um, of course I'm looking at my friends and they're smiling now they're trying to, uh, keep face and, and make me feel, uh, safe. But I, then that's when I heard uh, as they wheeled the gurney out, the radiology attending who didn't, didn't realize that I was there, um, excitedly said, go get the medical students, go get the, you know, the residents, come on, these are great images, like, like you would, you're trying to teach. Um, but of course, I was there. And, and uh, when I heard it, it just crushed me. Wow, it's unbelievable. I can't even imagine going through that. My heart goes out to you and the younger you that had to experience that. My next question is, you know, multiple sclerosis is definitely one of those conditions that you hear from experts saying over and over again, this is a chronic, debilitating, progressive disease, expect this. And you said that they, you were told the same thing, expect you're going to be in a wheelchair in this amount of years. This is probably going to be your quality of life. Get prepared for that. But did you ever hear any other healthcare professional telling you otherwise? Like, alternative treatments or changing your diet or anything? Did you only hear this is just going to get worse? Just take the medicines and deal with it. It was, I didn't hear any, um, any of that alternative uh, positivity. It was all, uh, we have to be realistic. And, and in fact, when, when I had that first MRI in 1995, I had quite a bit of burden of disease. So the neurologist I mean, I saw the images, I still have them. Uh, he said to me, uh, you're, I had just, it was a week after I turned 28 years old. And he said to me, look, um, it is very likely uh, that within 10 to 20 years, you will be in a wheelchair. Uh, and you need to plan for that. And the best we can do, and at the time, I remember him, I remember he said to me, you're actually lucky because uh the first drug had just been approved by the FDA for multiple sclerosis, a drug called beta seron. So he, he said to me, uh, you have this chance, uh, to take this medication, which has been proven and shown to slow the progression of the disease. It doesn't cure the disease, but it will slow the debilitating uh, effects of the, of the disorder. Uh, and I, you know, obviously as a physician, I knew very well what multiple sclerosis was and, and having, cared for patients with MS and even spent time as a resident and medical student on the neurology ward uh, that strict that took primarily care of MS patients. I, I knew what it was. So to hear him say uh, that the future for me was going to be a wheelchair, a nursing home setting. Uh, I mean, I had just turned 28. I had just complete, I was on the brink of completing my residency, a, a dream come true for me. I mean, I was, I'm an immigrant uh, to this country. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. I work really, really hard to achieve my dream. And I was on the brink, you know, um, of completing it all. And, and I was excited about the future. And then it was like everything, the rug was pulled out from under me. And, and that's resulted in, um, a lot of anger and, and, and depression along with all of the symptomatology that I had to deal with. I mean, my bladder, uh, stopped doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, the pain that I experienced, the fatigue, um, 
it, it was, and even at one point losing vision, you know, I developed optic neuritis. So the thing about MS is that it's so unpredictable. Uh, and today you can feel fine. And then tomorrow, terrible things happen. Um, and then the other thing is that MS can also almost be invisible where it may, you may look okay, but you're experiencing a lot of symptoms. Um, so dealing with that, and, and I still had to complete my residency. I had agreed to do, to complete a chief resident year the following year, and then a fellowship, uh, which I did go on to do, but I can tell you that getting through, uh, the, the, the completion of my residency and my fellowship was really, really tough. Um, but I managed, uh, but it was largely, uh, with a lot of medication and uh, taking these, I mean, the, the medication beta seron is a really tough drug. It's a drug that I had to inject every night. And it was a drug that uh, I would have to pre-medicate with Tylenol or ibuprofen because the, of the side effect profile of the drug. So I would inject the drug at 10 o'clock and at two o'clock, like, like clock, you know, every, it, it was, it was like always at around two, between two and three o'clock in the morning, I would wake up with violent shaking chills, like the bed shaking, uh, fever. Uh, just, I felt like I had the flu and then you you can't sleep through that. So then I would be given Xanax or Ambien to knock me out and I would willingly and um, take that medication because it took me out of that state of, of pain. Uh, and so I became dependent on those medications and, and then, you know, the neuropathy and, and the pain that I experienced in my leg. So it was just, you can see how the, the side effects of the medicines led to more prescriptions, depression, Prozac, um, fatigue. Uh, it, it, it was remarkable that it, in my 30s, I had a pillbox and I would go to work with it and I was solely dependent on it. It was like, you know how people can't go anywhere without their cell phones, like they're constantly attached to them, right? You feel like naked without your cell phone. I felt naked without my pillbox. Uh, and, and it wasn't until that moment where I read that article about food and its connection, I always call it my aha moment. It's, it's like all of a sudden, you know, in, in uh, the Wizard of Oz where everything's black and white and all of a sudden there's color. That, that was for me that moment where it introduced like a new, it was an awakening, uh, an evolution that put me on this path. Like I can do something about this. I can do, I can do more than just take these pills. I can empower myself uh, and I can take control of this disease and this disease will not define me. Wow. You're an incredible human. And I just have to say, you're a warrior. I mean, I just can't even imagine, you know, we all have different tolerances and, you know, you're telling me it was hard. You had pain. You had to take pills all day long. You did have depression. You had mental health issues from this diagnosis and probably also from medication side effects, but you kept going. You finished your residency. You did your chief residency, your fellowship. That's so admirable. But I'm just wondering where you stand now, having been through so much for so long, because that wasn't even just like a, a few months or something, years and years of that, discovered what you did, made the transition, where you stand now. Do you feel so much passion because you remember what it was like and because you know that there's so many people that are still in that space where you were that might be helped by a lifestyle change? I mean, is that something that you think about all the time? 
every day. I mean, that's what drives me, right? I mean, because I, I know what it's like to be in that hospital bed and, and feeling lost and, and hopeless. Uh, uh, and when I hear MS specialists and MS doctors uh, uh, say things like diet plays no role, lifestyle plays no role, and disease-modifying therapies uh, are the only uh, management tool that MS patients have, it, it, it um, infuriates me because it's a missed opportunity so that if my message can get across to any anyone uh, suffering from this disease or and then it's it's it serves uh, the purpose uh, of all of this I believe that everything in our lives comes in our path with reason that you know this experience that I had as a, as a patient and the the period that I had of suffering has to play has to serve in some way uh, and so that that's uh, that's why I made the film that's why I wrote the book that's why I gave up my work in infectious diseases after 15, after 16 years of specializing in that field and really developing uh, a reputation in the field of hepatitis and HIV that I gave that all up to focus on a field that no one had heard of, lifestyle medicine. I opened one of the first practices in lifestyle medicine, I had zero patients when I first started, and people thought I had lost my mind. Um, and this is not alternative medicine or complementary medicine or, you know, it's not counter conventional medicine. It is just what should be the foundation of all medicine, of every clinical practice. The foundation should always be prevention, right? Prevention um, is, is uh, preferable to cure, right? So when, if we can prevent a disease from happening, then shouldn't we start there? Uh, so... I think that, the, and again, the messaging is very, very simple. And 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 you're absolutely right. That's that's one to, one of our detriments is that people think that the solution to this complicated chronic disease epidemic in which we are living must be complicated. It is not. There are many things in medicine that are complicated. When I was um, managing HIV patients and understanding the pathophysiology of hepatitis C, and and working with teams to develop you know, uh, molecules to treat targets in hepatitis. Those were complicated issues, for sure, that required um, a lot of thinking through. But these things are not complicated. They're very, very simple. And we know, we have the knowledge and understanding today to prevent 80% of the chronic diseases that we see today in clinical practice. And we as clinicians and physicians and healthcare professionals across our country and beyond need to speak to this loudly and effectively and and ubiquitously, we need to coalesce our voices. And I think that's why organizations like the American College of Lifestyle Medicine are so important. And I'm so proud that organizations like that and the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at, in, at Harvard are growing. Membership is growing because there's a, there's a sweeping awareness across our country that developing yet another drug to treat diabetes is not the answer to the diabetes epidemic, that it is addressing and having very serious conversations about what we're putting on our plate as Americans, how we are highly stressed, we're not sleeping, and we're largely uh, sedentary. These are, these are very, very important and difficult conversations that we need to have honestly with our patient population. Because if we give them the tools and we help them to un understand that these decisions that we make every day are so critically important in our health outcomes, 
then I think that we could we can uh, create meaningful change uh, in our healthcare system. But un- unless we all speak to it, I think we're going to fall short. And now for a very important message. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family dryami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. Yes, no. And, and I agree. I feel like there's so many physicians that are feeling burnout from the profession because most people that become doctors, they really do want to help people. <laughs> you know, I know right now some doctors are not seen that way, you know, so, but we do, we, we want to see people getting better. We want to see people happy and joyful and pain-free. Of course. And whenever you're dealing day in and day out with not helping people do that, it does lead to burnout. It leads to that feeling like, well, what am I even doing here? I, I'm not even helping people. And so now that many healthcare professionals and really great medical students and residents too, they're learning about this and they're like, there's a different way to approach this where I can actually make an effect in a person's life that will give them well-being and longevity and, and what they're seeking, you know, the health that they're seeking. So it is very, very powerful. So I hope more people learn this, not just physicians, but people out in the general public that are wanting to take control of their health. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about lifestyle medicine and defining it. For those that don't know, I know we we do talk about it on this podcast, but not as much the actual definition, why you think it's so impactful, and maybe tell us what the six pillars are. I know you kind of mentioned some of them, but sure. let's formalize it a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so lifestyle medicine is is a clinical discipline that's focused on on six, some people call it pillars. I In my book, and I'm I'm very visual, uh, so I I like to use um, the analogy of a wheel, uh, the wheel because uh, and then if you would envision the spokes on the wheel, the, these six spokes and and the the reason I say that is because then it sort of connects them. They're sort of dependent on one another, and I like to and I say to patients because some of us are so good at food or really good at exercise, but then we tend to not pay much attention to maybe too much alcohol or we're not sleeping enough. So I think in order for us to reap the greatest benefit, we really need to tend to all six aspects, right? So the six spokes are diet and nutrition, which is the first, physical activity, stress management, effective sleep hygiene, a discussion on substance abuse issues, and then the sixth is social interconnectedness. And each of them sort of feed off of one another. They, they're they're so important. In for example, if you're ex- if you exercise regularly, you're probably going to sleep better, right? Um, and when you eat healthfully, you're more likely to exercise. So this is what the evidence tells us. And so I always say to patients, you may not be able to. I mean, I've been doing this um, this plant based lifestyle since two thousand and three. So, and 
it's been a work in progress. Every year I do better and I strengthen uh, different aspects of, of my lifestyle. But to ask patients to, because I think this is sometimes um, where we're asking patients to change things overnight. And if we don't achieve, uh, you know, 100% uh, change overnight that we feel somewhat like we're, we've failed or, and the beautiful thing about lifestyle medicine is it's not uh, a sprint. It's a, it's a marathon, right? We're, we're going at, and, and we have to be respectful and meet the patient where they are. And what are you willing to do today? Wh what can we create in your environment today that will benefit these folks that we've just talked about? So it may be something very small as I'm, I'm willing doc to add um, a piece of fruit once a day to my diet. Okay, I'll take that. And then we talk about what what adding by adding that piece of fruit. Let's talk about all the health benefits. How we're at, you've just added an additional four grams of fiber to your diet. Um, those beautiful colors that you're you're ingesting. What does that represent? Phytonutrients, phytochemicals. How are they affecting my cellular health? So when you start to introduce those ideas, and these, these again are very simple concepts, patients get it, and 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 that encourages them to take it another step further. And, and so I've been doing this for a little bit of time, and I think that that's the most effective way uh, to, to support sweeping change. But again, it doesn't happen overnight. It may, where do you want to be five years from now, a year from now? I like to think of it as we're investing in our future, just like our 401k. We're saving a little bit every week. Um, and, and over time, uh, that accumulates and we see uh, really special and important um, health outcomes. So lifestyle medicine is, again, and I, and I say this all the time because there are disciplines out there that are considered alternative and that are counter conventional medicine, and that's not what we are. We practice evidence-based medicine along with practice guidelines. If I have a hypertensive patient, I'm going to treat them with medications if, if needed, but I'm also going to, or a diabetic patient, we will use medication as needed, but the idea is to reduce dependency on pharmaceutical agents because every medication has a, has a side effect. Uh, and if at all possible, uh, support the patient in reversing their disease state so that they can live uh, the best quality of life. So those are the lessons that lifestyle medicine um, offers uh, patients. And, and I think it's incredibly powerful. Uh, and as I said, these these topics um, are are really quite simple. Yeah, I love it. And what I love the most about lifestyle medicine is that lifestyle medicine applies to everybody, every everybody. patient, every age, every condition in yes. in a state of health or in a chronic disease it applies to everybody like you can use it in yes. every single specialty lifestyle medicine can be used in every single specialty it does Absolutely. it's not like this little siloed thing where you only have lifestyle medicine patients really hopefully all physicians at some point will all practice lifestyle medicine yeah. you know i think that's what it's so wonderful about it and what, what else I love about it that you were pointing out earlier is that whenever you become certified in lifestyle medicine, you also learn some coaching techniques. We learn how to approach patients in a different way. Like you said, meet yeah. them where they're at. We're not just like, okay, do this. 
give you the prescription, come back next week after you do that thing. You know, like we're more like, what are you willing to do? What are your goals? First of all, because not all patients have the same goals. Maybe at the beginning of your journey, it was like, I really just want to feel less pain or I want to be more mobile or whatever. So we start with the patient where they are, what goals they have and help them work through it. And it's accessible for everybody. One of the things I'm curious about from your story, whenever you had that aha moment and you learned about plant-based nutrition and how that could affect you, how long did it take before you realized, okay, I'm onto something, this is making a difference? How long was it between having that realization and being like, something's going on here that's really important? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's a question I'm often asked. Uh, I can tell you that in the beginning, it was it was scary because my doctor said to me, what you're doing is irresponsible. Uh, you are a physician. Uh, you know that you're taking great risk because you're now coming off of a medication that we know uh, studies have shown can reduce your risk of having an exacerbation and, re- and, and reducing your risk of progression, and you're going to you're gonna you're going to discontinue that. So, again, as a physician and as a scientist, it 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 appeared irresponsible. But what he didn't understand, and by the way, um, this physician that I'm referring to is uh, an extraordinary individual, a clinician and scientist, well recognized in his field. And he was simply advising me as he was as he's been trained, and he certainly had his my best interest in mind. I have no doubt. Uh, and of course, there's no there was no proof at the time. I mean, we ha- I think we have more uh, proof or, or more evidence today as to how diet affects MS through the microbiome and we can we can talk a little bit about that but at the time there was really i just knew that the path that i was on was intolerable and i just couldn't do it anymore i mean i i look like a giraffe meaning like all the injection site reactions like i had run out of space like when going through my thigh my legs my belly i mean it just it was terrible and and i was in pain uh and i just couldn't do it anymore so i i came to the realization like i'll I just want to be free of these medications. Even if it's five years that I don't have to do this, it'll be well worth it to me. Um, So when I first started, I can tell you the first year, I actually had an exacerbation. And that's when everybody was like, oh my God, what did you do? But I knew that uh, things were getting better. I I started to notice things like I had a little less fatigue. Uh, I used to, I always say this when I speak or like I could stay up past Jeopardy, you know, which was like a big deal. Like I would, my my husband and I would watch, I'd be sleeping and he would, he would watch it and tell me about it the next day. But little things like that. um, I remember even early on getting to my office at the VA. And so I would always have my cane in the car. And I remember one day getting out of the car and I would instinctively go to the back and grab the cane. One day I felt, you know what? I feel good enough today. I'm not. I'm. I'm going to leave the can in the car. And that was like to me a home run. You know, <laughs> like little little wins like that meant everything. Uh, and I could. And I started to lose a little bit of weight without even trying, um, because I was. And I just felt happier. Some of that anxiety, that weight that I was carrying around, um, started to lift. 
And so there was there were little signs that things were going. And then I boom, the event occurred. I woke up and I couldn't. And, and that event that happened in late 2003 couldn't feel my arms. Woke up and there they were, gone. Uh, and then there was the guilt of like, what did I do? <laughs> did I bring this upon myself? Um, and there was a lot of um, blame from people in my environment. Um, but I fought through that. I got through the, so, you know, the treatment of an exacerbation is, is, uh, steroids. So I received, um, solimedrol for, for three days and it improved. Uh, and then I started, I, I just got back on the horse and I, and I, and I kept to, I, I kept doing what I was doing, getting on my bike every day. And I could do three, four minutes. That's I know that sounds crazy, but two, three or four minutes on a bike without stopping, that that was a big win for me. I couldn't, when I started, do 30 seconds on a bike without stopping. So I went back and I and I every my diet, I more and more meticulous about what I was consuming, more and more colors on my plate, more and more plants on my plate. I was pushing aside the foods that at one point that I loved. That I that I thought were were delicious, and I, I modified um, my palate. I learned, you know, one of the the biggest um, wins for me was learning how to sleep. I was addicted to Ambien, addicted like I could not sleep without it. I took that medication for eight years straight every night, either Ambien or and when I needed it a little bit more, I took a Xanax because <laughs> everybody was giving it to me. Uh, so I was addicted. So coming off of that medicine and learning how to sleep, that was the hardest. Learning uh, what my environment should look like, cool, dark, and quiet, um, pre-sleep rituals, um, all of those things, scheduling my sleep. I, I go to bed at nine o'clock every night and I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, like clockwork. I don't have an alarm. I just do. I sleep like a baby. I sleep so peacefully. I have beautiful dreams. I mean, you know, I have, a, I, I'm a professional sleeper. And at one point in my life, I was, I would define um, my sleep uh, structure as insomnia. I, I was terrible. And even as a young woman, before my diagnosis, I was always stressed and I would worry and worry about my exam, worry about my boards, worry about, you know, always love, super anxious young woman, worried about everything. That's another gift that MS has given me. It's changed my perspective on life. There's little worry. There's a lot of peace and acceptance. I think that's so important. That ex So much of the suffering that we experience in life is our resistance to what is. When we accept whatever life brings us, life gets easier. And I learned how to do that. You know, I learned that no matter how difficult... Uh, and. And, and I'm not immune to difficulties. I, I, I receive them every day. Uh, but I remind myself every day that whatever it is that, that uh, presents itself, that I have to accept that there's a reason why it's here. And, um, and again, this idea of learning that suffering comes from not accepting. That's a big lesson. And that's a tough one. Because uh, I, I say that to uh, a lot of young women uh, who who feel like the world is, is, is coming in around them and, and they feel crushed over particular. And I, and I try to give them that 
perspective, like pull back and see the world as a bigger uh, entity and that this too will pass. That's another one that I love. It's true. This too will pass no matter what difficult moment we're in. That uh, And we're passing through a very difficult moment right now in our country and globally as a society. We're, we're experiencing a very difficult time. But no matter what it is, that it will pass and um, a brighter day will come. And, and so that that's offered me a tremendous uh, amount of strength. So, but the question that you asked me is how long did it take? It really took, um, very early on, I saw signs that things were serving me. There is one day that I remember well, I talk about this day all the time. And the reason I remember it well is because um, I have a photograph uh, of, a, it, was, it was in July of 2005. It was about two years after the diagnosis. And uh, I, I remember this day because I, I went to a wedding. A friend of, of mine had inv invited us, my husband and I, to his wedding. And I did two, day, two things on that day um, that are going to sound sort of silly to you. But to me, it meant a lot um, because I hadn't been able to do it in a long, long, long time. I wore heels and I danced with my husband. Those were two things that I didn't think I'd ever be able to do again. Uh, and I remember the joy of that day of being on that dance floor um, and, and just having the, the, the time of my life uh, and just feeling so grateful for uh, what for, for two years earlier, walking with a cane and a diaper with the pillbox to this young woman who was just joyful and hopeful and expectant that many beautiful things were just around the corner. This past October 11th, 2020, that just passed, that was exactly 25 years since I was diagnosed and in that MRI machine that night. And on that day, I walked, ran 25 miles um, on my own two feet, medication-free. So I have much to be grateful for. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. 
In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Wow. So amazing. So many gems. I, I just love everything that you have to say, especially that acceptance of reality. I don't know if you have learned from Byron Katie, what she likes to call loving what is, you know, like sometimes there's reality of our situation and we may not be able to change some things and we create more suffering by trying to change things that we may not have control over. So, so many gems. And I'm just so grateful that you saw that article, you took it upon yourself and you were so determined because that also took a lot of strength. Whenever you see patients and clients, both as patients, or, you know, if you do some coaching, what do you feel that they struggle with the most when it comes to habits and behaviors? What, what are some of the most more difficult things for people to, to work on and change? I, I think the most uh, challenging of the, the six spoke, I mean, everyone's different and, and comes in with, for different reasons, but I think the most challenging for me uh, to convey to patients is, is, is the food uh, aspect because there's so much confusion about what a healthy diet looks like. You know this. Every day there's a new article that's published or there's a new fad diet or a new book that that claims to have the answer to what is a healthy diet. Uh, and it, it really, the, the whole terminology, and particularly for women, like I, my generation of women, when, when I was a young woman growing up, you know, it was about healthy meant skinny. And the smaller you were, the better. Right? We had to fit into our Jordache jeans or Sarucci jeans. I don't know if you remember those. You're, you may be too young to remember those. But And the way that we um, dealt with diet was we, we restricted intake. We counted calories. We weighed food. So we had this generation of women that has this terrible relationship with food. And food should be the most glorious and joyous one of the most glorious and joyous aspects of our life. And we've created this food monster. Carbs are bad. Fat is bad. I need more protein. Like all of these misconceptions that flow freely throughout society and they, they get, um, you know, perpetuated throughout. And, and, and there's so many, every individual that comes in, into my office with all of this background and I say to them, let's just erase all of that history we have with food. Let's just put it aside and let's start anew. Food, healthy eating is so easy. It's so easy. It's really about the plant. It's about centering that plate with the plant. And why? 
let's talk about what is inside of that plant that makes it so great. I mean, these are really simple themes. Maybe it's me. I'm a simple lady. I like things real straightforward. And it's really about increasing and forget about all that terminology. So I think the food piece is really, really um, challenging. The other aspects are are easier to manage and to introduce and in, uh, helping patients understand how valuable they are. But for me, the food piece is always so complicated because there's some, and there's a lot of um, people are sort of embedded in their beliefs, right? They're entrenched uh, in their beliefs. So it's really hard to pull them out of that. And you want to be very respectful because you don't, because they might come in and say, well, my mom said, my, my, you know, and mom's never wrong. Um, we don't want to, we don't want to upset anyone. Um, so I will often invite patients to bring their significant other or bring their, whoever they want to bring so that we can have a conversation together. And the other piece is that I am not all knowing. Uh, I do my best every day. There's nothing in medicine, by the way, that is black and white. If you think it's black and white, then you're off because, you know, things change all the time. And we have to be uh, fluid as physicians and healthcare professionals and scientists. We're looking at the literature as it as it speaks to us near daily. And so I'm I'm very cognizant of that. But but I said and I share the 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 literature with them because I want them to understand that this is not um, Dr. Stancic's subjective opinion. This is based on a incredible body of peer-reviewed medical literature. And I share it with them to help them understand these theories, these um, concepts, because you know what? They're going to go um, to their internist or they're going to go to their endocrinologist or their cardiologist and their cardio, and they may not understand this by no fault of their own, because Again, that's the other side of this that we're, and, and the reason why I made Code Blue, because we need to bring attention to um, modifying the curriculum taught in medical schools to reflect this. That's a, a, a huge um, issue that we need to face uh, to, to correct the course here. But uh, I think that um, the food aspect is, is most definitely, for, at least for me, I, I'm curious to know for, from your perspective, particularly as a pediatrician, and, and speaking to, to mothers and, and the whole dairy thing, I think that must be really challenging. Yeah. And it, when you were talking earlier, I, the, the word that came to mind was baggage. Food yes. and, and eating comes with so much baggage. And the, yeah. there's still so many people that struggle because I focus on intuitive eating and health at every size. And believe me, I have a massive audience for that there because there's so many mamas that they themselves are still struggling with their body and their diet. And whenever we're ourselves as parents struggling, it makes it really awkward and complicated when we feed our children, <laughs> you know, because we're like, well, should, is that good? Is that going to make them fat? Or if they're not eating enough, this is that going to, you know, so it just makes it really, um, really weird for some parents. And so you're right. I think that that eating and food history comes with a lot of baggage. There's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to relearn and it doesn't happen overnight. I know because I had to go through this myself. It takes time. It takes patience. Where would you feel like there might be some easy wins for people? Is there places where, you know, like a lot of people, it's kind of like one of those tweaks or like a, a flip of a switch that they can start making some changes to their lifestyle? 
that's a good one. Um, I I think it's just like we like we mentioned earlier, just introducing one um one aspect that you you feel comfortable you can apply. Like I'm going to add a piece of fruit once a day. That's it. And and when we meet up again in a month, what could we build upon? with that. And they'll notice that, you know what, doc, hmm, my bowel movements are better. <laughs> I've noticed that. That's one of the, I had, th this actually happened to me. I had a patient uh, come in for their two week follow-up. I opened the door and, and sh she came in and just gave me this big hug. She said to me, Dr. S, I am pooping every day and I am so happy. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy. Nobody really likes to talk about poop, but that's one of the most immediate benefits of. A, I love of talking a, about poop. I'm, first of all, I'm a pediatrician, and I spent 30 years constipated. So anybody that interviews me for a podcast, they get my constipation cure story, and they learn how much I love pooping. Pooping oh, is good. Then pooping we're, is the we're best. on the same page. <laughs> pooping is the best. And when you're when you've been constipated for years, and all of a sudden you're pooping um, effortlessly, it makes a big difference. So that's one of the most immediate effects from this diet is that change in, in, in bowel movements. And it's, and it's, and it, and it, and that again, you know, every one of these little uh, positive signs that we see builds to the next one and serves the patient to continue on the path. Um, and that's what I've witnessed. And I think it's, I think it's wonderful. And then, you know, you see, you do their blood work and all of a sudden they see their hemoglobin A1C improve or, or, or fatty liver disease or see their transaminases improve. That's another thing, you know, as a, as a physician who for many years in, uh, in my career, I manage hepatitis patients and, you know, hepatitis C used to be the number one cause of liver transplantation in our country. It's not anymore. It's now NASH. Right. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease evolves into non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is what NASH is all about. And so that's so think about it. Even our diet and lifestyle is contributing to the number one cause of liver disease, which is leading to liver transplantation. It's crazy. That's incredible. And I know every time I hear that stat, I just it shocks me all over again. And I'm Latin American. And I know that Me Latin too. Americans are <laughs> disproportionately affected um, by fatty liver disease. And I know family members that have been affected by it. And we don't talk enough, I think, in the Latin American community about our diet and lifestyle and how it can be impacted, um, you know, how it can impact those conditions. So, yeah. And, and you know, what I was thinking, whenever you're talking to your patients about making these small changes, the mantra there really is progress over perfection because yes. like you said it earlier, sometimes I feel like we, we want to have these goals. We want to change everything at once. We want to just go extreme, but that doesn't help us sustain and maintain these habits. So starting little by little, getting that one down, moving on to the next level, little by little, that helps us sustain and maintain these habits instead of like crashing and burning or doing the nothing part. Well, it's going to be too hard, so I'm not going to do anything at all. I think that that's such a great concept that I want more people to learn that it's okay to start with the smallest thing and then add on to it. So right. Really and, and, you know, that's the term that you used before baggage, I think also in the past, we've been all about, I want to lose 10 pounds in three weeks, that whole 
if I don't do it in three weeks, then I'm moving on. I failed. And then we, we, we abandon. It's, it's like those new year's resolutions. This is why I don't like new year's resolutions because people will start out with a bang and then it fizzles out because, you know, it's not about that. And, and by the way, when you're implementing these lifestyle changes and you, maybe you have a bad day, you make a mistake. It's okay. Like, don't be so hard on yourself. And we're so, we're so t- particularly women. Oh my God, we self flagellate. It's terrible. We, we need to stop doing that. It's okay. Let's learn from that experience. Like, why did I make that not so great choice? Um, what was happening in that moment? Like, take, peel back the layers and understand what led to that. So that next time that very same thing happens, we're, we're better equipped uh, to manage it differently and to approach it differently. But my goodness, let's love ourselves. Let's be kind to ourselves. And let's stop with this like negative uh you know, imagery and, and oh, I'm bad or gosh, let's just be kind. It's, it's interesting how we're so kind to everyone around us, but we tend to be most hard on ourselves. Yes. We have these unrealistic standards, but I love that seeing these little bumps in the road as learning opportunities, not as evidence that there's something wrong with us or that we failed, but just being curious about it. Oh, wow. I, I reached for a couple of donuts today. Why is that? Could it be because I only got four hours of sleep last night? Maybe. How can I get to sleep earlier? Or how can I how can I improve my sleep? And just like you were saying, these habits, they all feed into each other. And some of us mm-hmm. have keystone habits that are really important for us to tackle so that it can help us progress in our other habits. But I love it. I love that philosophy. What do you wish more people knew? <laughs> we've talked about this but how simple this is it's so simple it's not complicated and um that if if we could convey that message effectively it, it would it would it would do so much good because i think we're 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 often afraid uh to introduce changes in our life and this applies to anything because we we think it's going to be so complicated and it's going to overwhelm us um, I, I think the simplicity of, of all that we talk about in, in lifestyle medicine, you know, I just want to say one, one other thing is that what, what benefits, um, cause people say this to me all the time, um, it, the diet that you discussed, Dr. Stancic, is that an MS diet? Um, or what is the best diabetes diet? Um, no, this is the same diet for everybody. So if you come to see me because you're concerned about your MS, I'm going to say the same thing to you as if you come to see me for your poorly controlled diabetes. It's the same thing. But we want to complicate it. Like here's the Alzheimer's diet or here's the you know cancer diet. It all falls into this. It's simple. Eat more plants. And, and, and that's it. And, and eat all kinds of different plants. And, and, and the other thing that maybe we don't talk about, which is really important. I'm also Latin American. I'm from Cuba. And so the dietary profile that is unique to me or that I enjoy may be very different than, I don't know, my, my, my Italian American husband uh, who may have, again, but we exchange ideas. The point is that each culture has vast options in the plant-based kingdom. You know, just because, um, your, uh, nutrition profile is different than someone else's doesn't mean that it's less effective, right? We should enjoy and respect our cultures and, and consume the foods that we love. I, I think about all the beautiful foods my mother uh, sh- um, prepared in the kitchen when I was a little girl. Uh, 
I want that in my life. Uh, we can certainly improve upon it and, and we can make some modifications, but we shouldn't abandon who we are and our, and our culture and, and what we love. Uh, kale is great, but if kale is not part of something, I mean, there's so many other greens that we can, we can introduce into our lives that, that may be reflective of who we are, our culture, and what we most enjoy. I want food to be uh, blissful. I want us to, I mean, think about when we, when we gather for celebrations, Thanksgiving, uh, uh, whatever, Christmas, whatever holiday, um, a wedding, we sit and we share a meal with our family and friends to celebrate. So that joy, when we sit at the table uh, with our families, should some should be something that we experience daily. It, sh- it shouldn't be something, and it, and 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 food can be not only delicious, I mean, not only helpful um, and support healthy health health outcomes rather improved health outcomes but it can also be delicious i think that's the other thing that people don't understand oh my goodness plant-based diet that's carrot sticks and celery sticks it is so not that it is so adventurous um and there's so many options and there's so many wonderful plant-based chefs that are um that are you know available to us and plant-based recipes and websites and, and books it's it's growing exponentially because people are beginning to recognize how powerful it is uh, not only are they feeling great uh, but they're really enjoying food on a on a new level I mean plant-based I mean you know this uh, uh, there's so many beautiful recipes that are that are so enjoyable and um, and again are going to keep us fit and healthy and our cholesterol just where it should be and our blood sugars where they should be so that we can age gracefully, right? So I, I say this all the time, and I may sound like a broken bo- uh, broken record, and I it's in my book. My hope for each and every one of us is to age gracefully with dignity, right? And on that very last day on planet Earth, at age 102, hopefully, or 104, that we spend this beautiful day surrounded by family and friends consuming a beautiful diet a beautiful plate and on that night we go to bed and we pass away peacefully without having that end you know that bookend of pain and suffering in the nursing home that i've known very well as a as an infectious disease physician and and going through seeing those patients in the nursing home setting or in the icu status post stroke in the nursing home with the foley catheter and the infected pressure ulcer all of those things that i've witnessed alzheimer's uh, asking a patient, I'm going to check your bottom, asking for permission, and they're, they they have no idea who they are or where they are. It's painful. So witnessing that um, day in and day out, I would leave that hospital broken. And in retrospect, knowing all that I know today, that those cases are largely preventable. We should not have to end our lives in that fashion, that we can have that beautiful ending to our lives where we're with our families, we're clear of mind, we we are able to enjoy them and then pass peacefully. That's such a beautiful vision and such a beautiful hope for everybody to have that. That's what I want too. And I think we share a lot in our philosophies with our approach to food as well. In the United States, even though we are seeing compared to the rest of the world as some of the most health conscious individuals 
on the planet, we also derive the least pleasure from our food. And it's because we have all these food rules. We have all of this. We feel like we need to externalize, you know, we have to have a diet and a calorie count and macro count or whatever, but it's, it's so simple. Like you were saying, and it is amazing and abundant. My favorite word to describe a plant-based diet is abundance because they were talking about kale. You don't have to eat kale if you don't want to. There's like a bazillion other greens. You know, sometimes people ask me, well, I'm allergic to soy, so I can't be vegan. I can't be plant-based. I was like, do you know that soy is one of 400 edible beans? 400. Yes. So, I mean, the it's abundance one, yeah. is, is huge. So, and I mean- I love food so much. There's no way I could eat a diet that wasn't delicious. So everybody just needs to trust me. Believe me. I love the food. I love food. I'm with you. (laughs) Oh, and then one thing I tell you, I am actually going to be interviewing a Cuban American chef uh, in a couple of weeks. Raivel Hernandez, I believe. I have his book on my shelf, but I'll let you know after we get off so that you can look him up too. He just released a book. Full of Cuban, vegan Cuban recipes. So, <laughs> oh my Yay. God, I have to get that book. <laughs> so, I want to know about your personal habit that you're most proud of and why. Well, I think that my definitely my my personal habit that I'm most proud of is how good a sleeper I am. I already mentioned that to you, but I'm such a I told I'm like a when it comes to sleep, I should be wearing like a cape. I'm like a superhero. I'm so good at it. Nine o'clock, I get into bed. And I fall asleep within five to 10 minutes. You know, the other thing that I do is I I pray, I offer gratitude or some type of meditation. That's an important part of of my practice. Uh, And then I wake up at five o'clock and and refresh. And I still, by the way, you know, I I, I am by no means cured. I I live with MS. So I even at night, because of all the damage to my bladder, I may have to get up a couple of times uh, to, to go to the bathroom. But I, I honestly don't even like I can I can do that and just go right back to bed and I'll fall asleep right you know it doesn't interrupt the flow uh, of my sleep and when I wake up in the morning I have tons of energy I feel five o'clock in the morning I'm ready to just take over the world I mean you know there's a lot of I feel amazing and 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 so and so uh, again offering gratitude I think that's so so important some type of um, meditation or prayer whatever works for you but that calming the mind quieting the mind and and being very mindful um is is an important part of of all of this but i think the sleep part uh because i was so so addicted or uh, on these hypnotics that knowing that i don't need that um is is really for me very powerful Wow. Not only do you not need them, but you sleep probably better than the majority of Americans. I mean, that's pretty amazing. I would say that many people struggle with their sleep and sleep is so important for so many different things. It's, I am also one of those people that's very protective about my sleep. So I, I'm in bed early. I'll say sometimes I'm going to stay up with you guys. And literally by like eight 30, I'm like, yeah, just kidding. I'm going to bed. (laughs) Never believe me if I'm gonna if I tell you I'll stay up with you because I will change my mind as soon as I get sleepy. But no, I love how you call yourself a professional sleeper. That's the best ever. <laughs> this has been so fabulous. Could you please tell us how to connect with you, where we can find your documentary and your book, and 
if people want to try to see you, how they can reach you, please tell us all those details. Yeah, so I, I guess the easiest way is my website. It's drstancic.com. Codebluedoc.com is for the film. But on drstancic.com, you'll have a link to the film as well. And uh, the book is entitled What's Missing from Medicine, because this is what's missing from medicine. This is the, the piece of the puzzle that I hope is added to the curriculum of every medical school, because I do want the foundation of all um, medical practice to be this. And you said this so beautifully. This is part of oncology. It's part of cardiology. It's part of endocrinology. It's part. It should be part uh, of every aspect in, in clinical medicine. So um, th that's why the, the, the title of the book is What's Missing from Medicine. The, the book was released um, on January 12th. And, and so um, I hope that it resonates. And one, the book is a, is a simple, honest conversation between myself and the reader. Uh, it's not heavily uh, scientific. I didn't want this to be a scientific text. I wanted it to be light. I tell stories. Um, I tell my story. Uh, I talk about how I think we got to where we got to and, and what we need to correct course. And I think the the... The, the steps that that are needed for us uh, are are pretty straightforward. We need to focus more on this preventive wing in medicine, place a little bit of emphasis and respect to it uh, because we haven't we haven't we haven't given it its its um its uh, day in this in the light. Uh, preventive medicine. Uh, I don't know if you took preventive medicine when I was in, when you were in medical school. I took a course entitled preventive medicine and you know what it was all about colonoscopies and mammograms and that is not that's secondary prevention what we're talking about here is primary prevention why we want to prevent the disease from happening um, and so shifting that terminology and helping healthcare professionals understand what in fact primary prevention is and, and how much we can do uh, to regain control of our personal health um, uh, I, I think that uh, that's that's the the solution to the problem that we are facing. And and one just one last thought: uh, as an infectious disease physician living through the COVID nineteen pandemic, and with the background um, of this awareness that I have as someone who appreciates preventive lifestyle medicine, keep this in mind that we know in our country where you know, more than 50% of Americans are living with at least one chronic disease. If you have one chronic disease, the CDC has uh, reported that you're six times more likely uh, to uh, uh, be hospitalized if you were infected with COVID-19 and 12 times more likely to die. So wow. bringing these connections together, understanding that we are a country that is poorly equipped to battle this acute infectious contagion because we are a country drowning in chronic disease. Um, I hope that the silver lining here um, is that this difficult period will shed light on how important it is for us to take care of ourselves, to make better decisions so that we don't live with chronic disease. It, uh, it is um, regrettable that so many of us currently are suffering and uh, from diseases that are, we know, preventable. Yes. Oh, yes. It's, it's so true. And I didn't know those stats. That's pretty alarming. 12 times yeah. more likely to die. More likely to die. That's, that's yeah. really, and that's just one chronic condition. So I imagine that's if right. some people have multiple, my, my husband's an internal medicine hospitalist. So his life is opposite of mine. 
And so he does, he deals with patients that are coming in on 30 medications, multiple chronic conditions, and their risk is very, very high. They can get sick very quickly. Right. Well, Dr. Stancic, one more task for you today. If you can please (laughs) leave us with one call to action for the week, what is one lifestyle habit that we can implement this week to improve our lives? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think, how about this? We, um, how about offering um, gratitude? We're living in a very difficult time. There's a lot of anger in, in society. We've, we've, we've dealt with um, difficult moments. You know, and, and there's, there's an, a topic that I've been uh, lately uh, focused on in, in supporting uh, individuals who, who, who have been really weary with social media and some of the messaging that comes across and, and young people, and you as a pediatrician, I'm sure where the toll that social media can take in depression and suicide and, and, and so many um, negative comments and all of that. I think we have to be um, very aware of what is what our children are, are picking up on these social media outlets, what we're feeding off of. And, and, and I think for a moment, just taking a breath, um, becoming very, very mindful of what role uh, these, uh, um, you know, tech technologies have on on our overall um, anxiety and uh, and depression, and and maybe take a little bit of time to step away from it, and spend more time uh, in that what we call period of mindfulness, of prayer, of gratitude. Because there are so many wonderful things in our lives, and and we need to focus on those to get us through these difficult, more difficult moments. I think there's been a lot of um, this year has been difficult for 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 so many of us, and recently we've had some challenges. And I hope that um, we can just take a deep breath, offer gratitude, uh, and know that uh, things are going to be okay. I love it. I I love your philosophy. I love your approach. So many gems for the listeners, please. If you haven't already watch code blue, you can stream it online. I watched it through Amazon recently, so you can definitely do that and pick up Dr. Stancic's new book, What's Missing from Medicine. It's got a beautiful cover with her on it. I love the cover. It's so pretty. So thank you so much. I just, you're so passionate. You have so much energy. You're making such a huge difference in people's lives. And this is going to have just a ripple effect. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.